Welcome to the Anglican Church of the Good Shepherd, Pelham, Alabama podcast. Heavenly Father, what a word that you have given us today. A hard word to hear for so many, and yet a word that is necessary for us to hear. A word that is necessary for us to go out and cry out upon the mountaintops and the valleys. A word that we are called to live by. We are broken sinners, Lord. Help us to be filled by your grace, to see our need for repentance, our need for gospel, for our good news, our need for your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And fill us mightily, Lord, by your Holy Spirit. Call us, Lord, to serve you and help us to heed that call, not to neglect it, but to follow you, Lord, in all things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. parable of the rich man and Lazarus. It's a parable that when people hear it, they immediately want to keep going on. Let's go on to the next part of the gospel. Let's just pass by because it's a hard word to hear. And I dare say for the first time in my three-year tenure here, I actually heard you, the congregation, react to a gospel reading. I heard the hmm. That powerful note. When we hear the words of Christ telling us in this parable, speaking through the words of Abraham, that if they do not hear, those five living brothers of this rich man, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, the scriptures of the Old Testament, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. And that truly deserves a hmm. It deserves a pause a wondering of, hmm, how does that impact us or how should it impact our lives? What is the call for us to respond to this gospel reading today? And let's not forget where we've been in the gospel readings, where we're going through and where we're heading towards, ultimately heading towards the cross, heading towards the death of our Lord, of our Messiah, of God himself, God the Son. But where we're at in this teaching is that Jesus has been teaching the tax collectors, the sinners, with the Pharisees and the scribes as hostile onlookers. And Jesus has dived into the examples of a young man who squanders his wealth, squanders his inheritance, but then seeks repentance. Of a rich man whose unfaithful manager truly reduces his master's debts to protect himself. And then a warning that no man can serve two masters, God and money. And it's this statement that has inflamed the Pharisees, whom the scripture records were lovers of money. And so they, quote, they derided him, that is Jesus, they derided our Lord. For our Lord is setting the stage for this next parable by telling the Pharisees that you who justify yourselves before men... But God knows your hearts. For what is highly esteemed by men is an abomination in the sight of God. And we see that today in our lives. We see that in today's culture. We see that in today's world. No matter if you live in the West or in the East, we see man pursuing his own pursuits, going after and seeking after that which the Lord looks down upon as an abomination. And just as the Pharisees are called out by Christ 
so too are we called out. Because, listener, I want to ask you a hard question. Are you, like the Pharisees, trying to justify yourself before men? Not even trying to justify yourself before God, which is a whole other problem that we face. But are you trying to justify yourself before men? Are you seeking to try to, to CYA instead of laying down your life before the one, the only one, who can justify you before God? For I fear that far too often in our life we mix up priorities. And I talked about last Sunday how the fact that we should have a single priority is a problem. Instead, we try to tier our priorities, and God always gets mixed up. He's never there as the focus for us. And really, our singular priority should be God. And that influences everything else. Our relationships, our work, our speech, our waking and our arising. But instead, we want to prioritize. Once again, God's the bottom of the list. Didn't mean to this week. Try better next week. But the problem is what we're really doing is what the Pharisees did justifying ourselves before men. And that's why God just shrinks down in these lists of priorities that we don't even need to be worrying about. For our Lord is the same Lord God who talks about not worrying about clothing ourselves, feeding ourselves, but relying in faith upon Him. And if we have a faith upon God, a strong and fervent trust in Him, all these other issues are actually secondary. While they seem important in the eyes of the world, to have a home, to have food in our bellies, to have clothes... All that is provided for by our Lord God if we trust in Him. Instead of trying to justify ourselves before men or before God, instead of fearing men who can only kill the body instead of the one whom will judge the soul, we need to have a shift in our desires, a shift in what strikes us and moves us from day to day, a shift and why we set the alarm in the morning. For far too many of us, we set the alarm to get up, get out of bed, get to work, rinse and repeat. And while we all have a vocation which involves some sort of work, it may not be a formal job, it may be how we serve one another in our families or elsewhere, we don't set the alarm, or at least we shouldn't set the alarm, to simply get back into the routine, get back into that habit, get back into that following after whatever it is that we're trying to fill ourselves up with. Instead, it should be setting the alarm to praise the Lord, to give thanks to God for yet another day, to ask the Lord to make us servants for Him wherever we may be, to give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Well, let's get back to the Gospel reading, because we enter today's Gospel reading with a parable unique to Luke. And I say parable because Jesus tells this account with the typical preface from Luke. Excuse me. He tells it without the typical preface from Luke when he says that he's going to tell them a parable. He just dives right into this account. And so some Christian fathers have thought that this is a literal account. Others have said, no, it's, it's a parable. I personally believe that you can faithfully hold to either one of these interpretations. That this is what actually did happen, or perhaps it is a parable. But what's important for us to take home is the divine truth that the Word of God, Jesus Christ, is imparting to us through this account. Whether or not it be literal fact or a story to get to the gospel truth and the gospel matter. If you look at the reading, the account begins with a rich man who feasts sumptuously every day. 
What a great English word, sumptuously. And it really gives you that image of, like, of how well he eats, how, he, how well he feasts every day. And not only that, but he's also clothed, we learn, with the most expensive clothing, as indicated by that color purple, that pricey, rich, expensive color during these times. And then we meet Lazarus. Not the same man that Jesus would later raise from the dead, but another Lazarus who, unlike the rich man, is named. But also, unlike the rich man, is poor. In fact, lives outside the gates of this rich man. And Lazarus, who's outside, is starving, is dreaming about just simply getting to the feet of this rich man's table. Because the food that's apparently falling off from these sumptuous mills is large enough that this man, Lazarus, could be fed by the discarded food. We also learn that although this rich man has Lazarus just outside his gates, that this rich man apparently has no compassion, no love, no concern to feed, clothe, or house Lazarus, much less to give him any anointment, an ointment to soothe the sores that cover his body. Instead, unlike the rich man, only the dogs provide Lazarus any relief by licking his sores. And it's left unsaid in this parable. But perhaps this rich man, like the rich Pharisees, are more concerned about being ritually clean and not becoming ritually unclean under the Mosaic law than fulfilling the spirit of the law to love our neighbor and care for him. For we see an immediate difference between the rich man and between Jesus, who's telling us a story. Jesus, who's willingly going to the ritually impure, impure tax collectors, dining with the ritually unclean sinners, and touching the unclean lepers. Meanwhile, Jesus is telling these parables, telling these stories, and the Pharisees are deriding Jesus as he does everything that the rich man, and in turn the Pharisees, refused to do for poor Lazarus. And then that great equalizer that comes after all of us comes after the rich man and Lazarus. Death. Poverty's and riches have no mark of separation between death. Both rich and poor go to meet it. Royalty does not prevent us from paying for our sin. Wisdom and fool alike meet the same fate. In the words of Psalm 49, Psalm 49, which was not part of our reading today, it reads that like sheep they are appointed for shale, that is the place of death. Death shall be their shepherd, and the upright shall rule over them in the morning. Their form shall be consumed in shale with no place to dwell. And then comes verse 15. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, and he will receive me. For that last line in the psalm gives us hope. It gives us good news for those who trust in the Lord their God. Gospel, that Jesus, God the Son, shall ransom us and receive us. And we see this gospel played out when the wicked man lies unnamed in hell, in Hades. But Lazarus, who is named like those who will be named in the book of life who put their trust and their faith in Christ and Christ alone. And we find named Lazarus, no longer poor as he was on the earth, but dwelling in peace next to Father Abraham's side. 
And the fact that this rich man is vividly describing the suffering in Hades and hell, it may shock you and those who are of moderate sensibilities listening in. But the rich man who preferred enjoying life in this evil age reaped what he sowed. Not because he is rich, but because he has not lavished his riches upon anyone but himself. He has fed his own soul and he has paid dearly with his own soul. It makes me think about the Indiana Jones movie of where you see the crusader and after the person goes for what he thinks is a chalice of the Lord, the Holy Grail drinks and then is vividly killed by drinking from the wrong chalice. And that crusader leaves us with the famous words, he chose poorly. He chose poorly. He chose to feed himself instead of feeding others. He chose that bowl of stew like Esau did for that instant satisfaction and despised his own birthright as a Jew who has inherited the covenant of God, who has the testaments, whom as Abraham reminds him, if you will not listen to Moses and the prophets, you will not listen should a man rise from the dead. Church, we too must not despise our own birthrights, which is really an adoption. There is no rights for us, but a birthright that's been gifted to us by virtue of being adopted by God the Father into Christ Jesus. You were baptized in the name of the living God. Don't walk about thinking that you're better than this rich man in this parable, but instead cast yourself at the mercy seat of God. At the feet of Jesus, who was nailed at the cross for your sins and my sins. And then be welcomed into those open arms of Christ Jesus as he embraces you and clothes you with his own righteousness. Be claimed by Christ Jesus. And identify yourself not in your own eyes, not in the eyes of the world, but be identified by the eyes of Jesus as a lost sheep who's been rescued to be part of his flock. And then respond in that divine love that he pours out abundantly upon us by walking in the light of Jesus Christ and fleeing all manners of unrighteousness. And instead, as St. Paul commends Timothy today in the reading, pursue righteousness, pursue godliness, pursue faith, pursue love, pursue steadfastness, pursue gentleness. All the things that Lazarus did not experience from the rich man but whom Lazarus, whose name means God will help. And God indeed does help. He redeems. God is a God who saves and saves Lazarus and puts him there at Father Abraham's side. For indeed, God has helped Lazarus. God has redeemed him, not because he's poor, but despite his poverty, despite his illness, despite his hunger, Lazarus has faith in God, the one who will help him as his name means. And so God saves Lazarus and puts him with another rich man, Father Abraham, who is rich not only in material wealth, but more importantly, is a man rich with faith. Father Abraham, the man rich with faith. And as the writer of Hebrews puts it, Abraham is our model for faith and faithfulness, for trust and trusting in Christ and Christ alone in a world that seeks to redefine what is right is wrong, and what is wrong is right. In a world that's constantly telling you and telling me, you must do more 
before you're accepted. Not by God, because the world could care less about God. But you need to do more to be accepted by men. You need to justify yourself in the eyes of men. Instead of seeking the justification from God. And the only way we find it is not by us, but by Christ alone. And there sits Abraham. Resting in his only comfort in life or in death. In God's faithfulness that he pours out through his son, Jesus Christ. The son of God and the son of man. What does this parable teach us? It teaches us four important things. The condemnation of our own sins. The condemnation for our own error, for missing the mark. So that we who are the living know that we are so evil in our own sins that no miraculous event is going to guarantee our conversion. That Article 9 in the Articles of Religion on the depths of sin that every human being faces, it words it like this, that it's the fault and it's the corruption in the nature of every man, not just some, not just Adam and Eve, but every one of us, that naturally for us it's engendered, that for those of us who are the offspring of Adam, for all of humanity, that a man is very far gone from the original righteousness of our foremother and our forefather in the garden, and of our own nature inclined to evil, so that flesh is always lusting contrary to the Spirit. And therefore, every person born into this world deserves God's wrath and damnation. That's the truth and the reality of what we learn. We hear that we are meant for destruction if we do not see the need for a Savior and cast ourselves upon that Savior. We see the realities of death and the realities and the consequences of if we just reap and we just fill ourselves up with that which we want, which we desire, then we will reap what we sow, a reality of hell. A reality that's spoken by Jesus far more than anyone else in the Scriptures. And this reality is unpleasant because you're with the enemy, the evil one. You stay aligned with the false kingdom and the false promises and the falsities of Satan and his rebellion against God. There's no relief we hear in this parable. There's no possibility of relief because of a great separation after we have died. And for too many of us, especially in this world and in Western culture, we don't want to hear this. We want to stop up our ears. And like Thomas Hobbes famously says, hell is a reality that's known far too late for far too many and we as Christians above all people should not rejoice in that. We should weep and lament. And we should wish to be servants of God to go out and tell that there is good news. We are no longer condemned in our sins because of what Christ Jesus has done. That all it takes is the faith of a mustard seed to come to the loving arms of Christ Jesus. That you need to stop working out your own salvation by making it yours. By saying, I will save myself or I will attain to where I want to be in life. And I will make myself rich. Instead, we need to work out our salvation by throwing ourselves down at the feet of Jesus Christ. And realizing I cannot do it. I cannot sanctify myself. I cannot save myself. And even after I have this faith of wanting to be part of you. And you being part of me. Of you abiding in me. And me abiding in you as we pray during Holy Communion. I need you, Lord, to even sanctify me. To fill me up with your spirit and your grace. Because right when I think I've got it, 
And I can do this sanctification thing on my own. I can do this holy walk on my own. I've got it. That's when I fall flat on my feet. And the good news is that Christ sees our struggle. And even with that mustard seed of a faith, He comes to sanctify us and continue sanctifying us. Even after death, being sanctified and glorified to be more and more like Him. The one who is our God, who came down to become man. The one who became our brother and calls us friends as we follow him. Adopted into his family by God the Father Almighty. As Paul tells us in Hebrews 9 verse 27, man is appointed to die once and after this judgment. It's a reality that we cannot deny church if we claim to follow Christ. And it's a reality that should motivate us to go and love and serve our neighbor. We also learn in this parable the sufficiency of scriptures. The sufficiency of the word of God. We learn that as much as we like to tell ourselves, you know, if only God would do this or do that, then I would believe or then I would have a stronger faith. Then I'd go out and do what he calls me to do in the scriptures. No, No miracle can truly change our sinful hearts and our sinful minds. It takes a new heart, a new mind, a sanctification by the Spirit of God to make us turn and to repent. Because the greatest miracle that could ever happen has occurred. God sent His Son, His only Son, God of God, light of light to become man. And yet mankind did not believe. God the Son healed the sick, raised the dead, fed the hungry, and mankind did not believe. We killed God the Son upon the cross, and in His divine providence, He used this act of malice and hatred on our part against God Himself to redeem us miserable creatures. And God the Son, God the Son rose from the dead on the third day. And immediately, the Pharisees pay off the guards to lie, create a story. Those, those cowardly disciples suddenly, somehow, mustered up the courage to overtake the guards and steal Christ's body away. It takes divine patience from God for us sinners in order for us to receive His divine love. And what gracious patience He has as He pours out upon us His divine love by changing sinners through our hearts. Through the gift of mighty God Himself, God the Holy Spirit, not a power Not the force, but God, the person, God, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Holy Trinity, God himself, whom by the spirit of truth, we are gifted new hearts. We are gifted faith itself. We are gifted salvation by trusting upon Christ alone. And scales fall from our eyes like St. Paul to see the loving God whom we rebelled against all these years, standing there with open arms. What a merciful father we have in God. What a loving Savior we have in God the Son. And what a mighty and powerful gift of the Holy Spirit we are gifted in our baptism. Christian, don't go seeking for miracles or demanding a sign. Because we are given the same sign that the Pharisees and the scribes were given. The Son of God buried three days and risen again. And in this parable, Christ points out that we are given something precious, a pearl of great price. We are given the scriptures, the law, the prophets, and so much more, the gospel. 
the gospel long promised in that old covenant. And so in Article 6, it tells us that the scriptures are sufficient for us. That Holy Scripture contains everything we need. Everything. All things necessary for our salvation. So lean upon that word of God. Trust in that word of God. And hear the words of Christ speaking to you and me today. What do we hear from this parable and from the scriptures? That we need salvation from a Savior. Not from ourselves. Not from a program. Not from riches. Not from happiness. Not from the spouse that we love or the spouse that we want. But we need salvation through a Savior. And that salvation is the very one who is telling us today's parable. That salvation is Jesus Christ, the eternal God the Son, always existing with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, who for our salvation came down and became man. And our sins are so great that we need what Article 31 tells us is a one oblation of Christ finished upon the cross. Because the offering of Christ once offered, once made, is the perfect redemption, the perfect propitiation, and the perfect salvation and satisfaction for the sins of the whole world. There is no other satisfaction for sin but Christ crucified. So now, we are called, we are tasked with walking in the light of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. For today you have heard the good news of Jesus Christ. So how are we to live the rest of the Sabbath day that we have? What do you do when that old alarm breaks in in the middle of the night and arouses you on Monday morning? Take a look at St. Paul's letter to Timothy, his young disciple. He tells Timothy to flee the evil of this age. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Instead, he tells Timothy to pursue holy living and to fight the good fight of faith. Because Christian, let me tell you, it's a fight. We better take it seriously as though it's a fight or you will get run over. Because the evil one is coming after you, coming after me, coming after your loved ones. He wants to make Christians who are simply weak in their faith Ineffective Christians who do nothing but sit in the pews, praise God with their lips, and do nothing to tend to the fields outside these walls. Because Christians are too busy these days crawling into little cubby holes, trying to avoid the world, trying to keep our head down, just stay focused on our career. When we need to be realistic that we're fighting the good fight of faith, we need to be not in cubby holes, but in foxholes, advancing and capturing enemy soldiers who we once were and making them into fellow soldiers for Christ Jesus. And that enemy we fight is not the enemy soldier who's flesh and blood. We're trying to take them and bring them over, make them defective from Satan's kingdom into God's kingdom, while Satan, meanwhile, is prowling about like a roaring lion. And if we're in our cubbyholes, he'll find your cubbyhole. But we have the Lion of Judah. We have the one who went with David, the one who took down Goliath. We have one who took down someone far greater than Goliath, the one who made heaven and earth, the one who is King of kings and Lord of lords, as St. Paul tells Timothy, who has broken Satan's back, who has bound him up, the strong man, and who raided death and hell itself. Christ Jesus is not unlike us. And that he became man and he faced Satan's temptation 
in a body like we are in a body. He faced all the schemes of hell in his earthly life and in his earthly ministry. And yet Christ resisted. Christ conquered Satan. And now he empowers you and me by the power of the Holy Spirit of God to walk with him as servants now, as soldiers of Christ. So let us dwell in that unapproachable light as Jesus dwells in eternally. Let us make a good confession as Jesus made the confession. And as Paul says, made the good confession and his testimony before Pontius Pilate, so too do you make your good confession today and tomorrow and daily. For Paul commends Timothy, urges Timothy, and urges us as well to take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. Take hold! And which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. We are about to make the good confession of our own faith through the words of the Nicene Creed. Take hold of eternal life. Live by the good confession. And Paul tells us how we do so. As he wonderfully brings together the last few weeks of the gospel lessons. Paul is going to address this and especially addressing the misplacing that we do in our own lives. The misplacing of our trust in riches, in wealth, in careers, in family, in earthly living. And he does so in 1 Timothy 6. So I want you to listen closely now as Paul answers the questions as to how Timothy and how we are to live in this world. When Paul admonishes us in 1 Timothy 6.17, Do not be arrogant or conceited. Do not be arrogant or conceited instead set our hopes on the un- excuse me do not set your hopes on the uncertainty of riches but instead put your hope on God who richly provides us with everything that we enjoy because we are called to do what to quote to do good to be rich in good works to be generous and be ready to share thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold Of that which is truly life. In this brief passage from 1 Timothy, Paul draws it all together. He talks about that we need to fight the good fight of faith. We need to take hold of eternal life. And you may be asking yourself, how do we do this? It's not by putting it in this uncertainty of riches. It's in putting it in the trust upon God who richly provides And what does that look like for us to do good, to be rich in good works? That's where our riches are called to be. And by doing so, then we may take hold of that which is truly life. Paul uses this term of riches, richly and rich three times to hammer home that reality that by seeking to serve God in money, it will only earn you hell. You cannot do both. But instead, those who seek riches Be rich in works for Christ Jesus. For as Luther famously says, God does not need your good works, but your neighbor does. We've been redeemed to be servants of God, to go and produce and produce richly. So don't store up for yourself riches on this earth, which is just storing up damnation, but instead store up treasures of heaven by following after that rich king of kings who pours himself out and pours out all of his riches like a drink offering for the salvation of the world. Because you have been enrolled in this household of faith that's called the church to serve and not to be served. You're called to be part of the fighting the good fight of faith. So as Paul says elsewhere, take up the shield of faith. 
and with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of hell. Take out the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. Church, there has been a war that has been won for us and a race now for us to run. The war has been won by the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And now he equips us to announce this victory to the world, to proclaim this good news to all. So let us go and let us proclaim the freedom to the captives and the good news to the poor in spirit. Both those who are rich with money and those who are poor in possessions, we are all the poor in the Spirit, and we all need this good news. And it's only by hearing this good news and casting our sins upon Christ Jesus that then we are empowered in Spirit to live a life of righteousness and godliness by responding in faith and giving all that we have to help our neighbor and to glorify God and God alone. Amen. Thank you again for joining us on the Anglican Church of the Good Shepherd, Pelham, Alabama podcast. We hope that you'd visit us in person. We have Sunday worship uh, every Sunday at 1030 in the morning. And you can visit us on our website at www.goodshepherdacna.com or visit us on Facebook at Good Shepherd ACNA. Also, if you enjoy the podcast, please like, subscribe, and rate the podcast. It not only makes us feel better, but more importantly, it helps those who are searching for Anglican podcasts find podcasts like this one and other ones that are out there on the web. Thank you, God bless, and have a good one. The Lord be with you, and with thy spirit, lift up your hearts. We lift them up unto the Lord. Let us give thanks unto our Lord God. It is meet and right so to do.